You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Well, I want to bring up an image that may be familiar to you. Um, I haven't pulled this out in a while, but this is our own little um, homegrown calendar of the church year uh, made by um, Mark Sprinkle um, and Andrew Moore and myself kind of working together. Um, And it's really just a, what what it demonstrates is that as Christians, we tell time differently. Um, We, you know, do everything differently as followers of Jesus, but we also keep our calendars differently because today is actually the last Sunday of the year. Happy New Year or Happy New Year next week. Um, This is what is called Christ the King Sunday, historically. And you can see that we're ending that period of ordinary time. And next Sunday is the first Sunday of Advent when we begin the second half of the year that is ordered around the life of Jesus, from his anticipation to his birth, to his life, to his death, to his resurrection, to his ascension, to his gift of the Spirit. So as Christians, what that means is that we actually are choosing to live our lives around a different story. We live around our lives... uh, around no story but the story of Jesus and what he has done for us and for the world. So today, it's very appropriate that we would be ending this series on 1 and 2 Samuel on Christ the King Sunday. We've been calling this series Longing for the True King. Uh, We've been saying week by week that this is not just a dusty old story uh, with some exciting figures, But this is actually our story, the story of the people of God. And as we learn more about them, we learn more about ourselves. As we learn more about God's faithfulness to them, we learn about God's own faithfulness to his promises to us. So today we're looking at, we're finishing the series with looking at God's promise of an eternal king, looking at this very important chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 7. So let's hear God's word as the Woy family reads it to us. A reading from 2 Samuel chapter 7 verses 1 through 17. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it for the Lord is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. 
the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who built a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will establish will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hey, uh, kids, raise your hand if you have ever flown on a plane. Oh, a lot of you. You have? Awesome. Well, if you ever fly on a plane, and those of you who fly on planes, you know this, if you ever fly on a plane and you leave Richmond, because Richmond is a, a fairly small city, mid-sized city, I guess, you often have to take a connecting flight. Every airline has what's called hubs, hubs around the country, and you have to often fly to one of those hubs to get to the final destination that you need to get to. So a couple months ago, I flew to my hometown, Chattanooga, to see my little sister and to go to my high school reunion. And so I left Richmond, and because I was flying Delta, I first had to fly to Atlanta on the way there. And then on the way back, I had to fly through Detroit. Detroit and Atlanta are two of the major hubs of Delta, okay? Y'all following me? So you gotta fly through the hub to get to where you wanna go. I wanna use that as an analogy today for just a little lesson on how to read the Bible. Um, you hopefully know by now, if you've been around here for a while, that, that the Bible is not just like a random collection of stories and laws and rules and inspirational thoughts, but the Bible is actually one unified story that points to Jesus. That's the words from um, the Bible Project, guys. A unified story that points to Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that um, everything is easy to understand in the Bible. It's not. And it doesn't mean that there's not really confusing things in the Bible. There are. What it just means is that the Bible as a whole is, in the words of one writer that I like, a sprawling, capacious narrative that points to Jesus. It is a sprawling, capacious narrative that points to Jesus. Now, one of the ways to learn this story is to see that just like with Delta Airlines or United or whatever, the Bible also has hubs, significant hubs, sort of watershed moments, major connecting points that you have to pass through to understand the journey as a whole. Does that make sense? There's major hubs along the way in the Bible that hold the whole story together. One of those hubs is Genesis 1 through 3. One of them is Genesis 12. One of them is Exodus 19. And one major hub in Scripture is the passage that we're looking at this morning, 2 Samuel 7. In fact, in fact, let me say this. It is difficult to overstate the importance of this chapter. Walter Brueggemann, who's probably considered the greatest living uh, scholar on the Old Testament, says, 2 Samuel 7 is the most one of the most crucial chapters in the Old Testament. Um, Tim Chester, a great Bible commentator, says, quote, 2 Samuel 7 is the most important chapter in First and Second Samuel, and one of the most important chapters 
in the entire Bible. So 2 Samuel, what we're looking at today, y'all, it's one of the great hubs. If you want to get any, if you want to travel anywhere else in Scripture, you got to go through 2 Samuel 7. If you want to understand the gospel, you got to travel through 2 Samuel 7. If you want to understand the mission of Jesus and who he is, you got to travel through 2 Samuel 7. And I would even say, if you want to actually know how to navigate life, you got to pass through the truths that are laid out in 2 Samuel 7. So, will you travel with me through the hub today that is 2 Samuel 7 and see some of the great truths that are laid out here. This is a chapter that's about David. Yes, it is about David and his legacy, but more than anything else, this chapter is about God, who God is and what God does for us. And if we wanna know this God and follow him and experience his love for us, you gotta grasp onto the truths that we pass through in this chapter. So let's do that together, okay? First, let's look at one of the great hubs here in this chapter, and that is the freedom of God, the freedom of God. If you have your Bibles, you might just open up to 2 Samuel 7 because I'm just gonna walk right through the text today. This is verses one through seven, the freedom of God. If you remember from last week in chapter five, um, David has become king in Israel. He's united the tribes. And one of the first things he did, kids, I'm gonna, I'm gonna test you here, see if you remember. One of the first things he did was he went up and conquered a city. What city was it? Oh man, y'all. Jerusalem. You're not a kid, Mark. Um, but thank you. Yeah, he went up and conquered Jerusalem to make it the political capital of Israel. But then he also wanted it to be the spiritual capital of Israel. So in chapter 6, you can go back and read that later, he goes and he gets that old tent called the tabernacle that housed the Ark of God. It was living out in a field somewhere and he went and got it and he brought it back to Jerusalem so it would be the spiritual capital of Israel. So one day, that's really where we find David in the beginning of chapter seven. If you look at verse one, it says that David is chilling in his palace and he's surrounded by the rest that God had given him on every side. And David's just up there one day in his rec room surrounded by his flat screen TVs, enjoying this new palatial complex that God has given him. And he thinks, you know what? It's just not right that I'm sitting here enjoying this amazing palace made of cedar and God is still living out there in that moldy old tent. It'd be kind of like, kids, it'd be kind of like your grandparents coming to visit you this Thanksgiving and you just pitch a tent for them to stay in in the backyard. Now that wouldn't be really cool, would it? When David is thinking, you know, this isn't right. I've got to do something about this. I know what I'll do. I'll build God a house. Now, let's pause there for a second because it, it does look like David is being appropriately pious and he is doing something to honor the Lord by building a house. But there's also something else going on here. There's some self-serving politics going on here. Because if you know a little bit about the ancient world, you know that every king always sought to build a temple to their gods adjacent to their palace. This was a way of sort of shoring up and solidifying political power. It was to secure the deity, the God's presence, to make sure that their blessing is on your side, right? You would never want, if your God is just living in a tent, any old enemy could come along and just steal your God away. So by building a temple, he's much more secure. You know where you can find your God. 
You know where you can go to get his blessing. Uh, You don't have to worry about him not being there when you need him. Having a temple and your God in there gives you a sense of control so that he's there when you need him and God is always there in your nice, controlled, religious box. This is what David wants to do. And so he says to his senior pastor, Nathan, hey, I've got an idea. I'm gonna build God a house. And Nathan says what any pastor says when a wealthy benefactor comes and tells him he wants to bankroll his church building program. He says, go and do what is in your heart. <laughs> right? <laughs> and, so, and so Nathan, uh, Nathan is like, yeah, man, this is awesome. And he goes down to sleep that night and God comes to him in a dream and God speaks. And this is the most that God has spoken since God spoke on Mount Sinai. God speaks and he has a whole lot to say. And what does God say? Look at verse six through eight. What does God say? Nope. God says, look, I've never lived in a house. Have you heard me complaining about it? No, last time I checked, I'm doing just fine. In fact, God actually expresses his preference for living in a tent. Why? Well, here's why. Because a tent, God living in a tent, communicates something very important about God, that God is a God who is free. He is not like the God of the nations. He will not be managed, bought off, controlled. He will not be domesticated like a tribal deity. This is a God who does what he pleases. As Walter Brueggemann puts it, quote, this is a God who will not be held in place by any religious arrangement. The God of Israel is the God of creation and this God is free. That's one of the great themes of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, that this is not a God under our control, but this is a God who is sovereign and king over all things, right? That's one of the first great hubs that we see here. Now, before we move on, let me just say this. Um, I do wanna just name, there's a temptation here, I think that we need to be careful of, and that is this. Look what's happening to David. The more successful you become, the more in danger you are of domesticating God and wanting to bring God under your control. When David was just a shepherd boy living out in the fields, he didn't really have an agenda for his life. All he had was his faith in the wild God of Israel who he knew could take down giants. But now that he's a big shot and he's got all this stuff and he's getting successful and powerful, David has developed his own agenda for his own life. And he sure would love to help God, to have God help him get it done. And I think we do this sometimes, you know, as we get more successful, as we get more secure, as we develop a a clearer agenda for our lives as we become adults, you know, we would really just like God to maybe keep God in a safe, controlled environment in his little religious box in our life, just go to him when we need him and help, have God help us get done what I wanna see happen in my life. But the God of scripture, the God of the Bible, the God of the gospel will not be tamed. He will not be domesticated or controlled. To know this God is actually to encounter him and to have your own agenda upset and to have your life turn upside down. This God says, you don't fit me into your agenda. To know me is for you to get fitted into mine. And that's in some ways what it means, part of what it means to become a Christian is to actually say, you know what? I surrender my own agenda for my own life 
And now I surrender myself to your agenda, God, which is always the agenda and the values and the vision of the kingdom of God, because God is a king and he will not be housed in any human religious home. <laughs> this is a God who is free, a God who is free. So that's the, really the first great theme, okay, the freedom of God. The second great hub that we see is the grace of God. Look with me at verses 8 through 11. You know, you might be saying, well, this God sounds kind of scary, um, is he predictable? Can I trust him? Is he good? Well, this is why the rest of this chapter is so important because what we see here is that God's freedom is never unpredictable or capricious, that God's freedom is always grounded in grace. So look what happens here uh, in verse eight. God comes to David in the dream and he says, hey kid, remember where I found you. Remember when you were out in those fields covered in sheep poop, running from bears and wolves? Remember that? And, and, and can you see now that you were living in this palace and wearing these beautiful clothes and leading a whole nation of people? How do you think this happened, man? How do you, how do you think this? Do you think this? Do you think you are where you are because of your good looks and, and, and your cleverness and, and your courage and your stick to Is that what you think, David? No. Look at, what, look at what God says. He says, listen to all of the I phrases. He says, I took you, I made you, I cut off your enemies, I will make your name great, I will provide, I will give. God is making it clear, David, you are not doing anything for me here. Everything that you do, everything that you have, all of it is through me. It is by sheer grace that you are where you are. It is by sheer grace that you have what you have. It is by sheer grace that you have the success that you experience. This is not about what you can do for me. This is only about what I have done and will do for you. C.S. Lewis was um, once interviewed by the BBC and the interviewer asked him, Professor Lewis, you know, after all of your years of learning and study, what do you think is the one thing that makes Christianity distinct from all the world religions, from all the global philosophies, from all the worldviews. What is the one thing that makes Christianity distinct? And Lewis said, well, that's easy. One word, grace. It's the one thing that makes the biblical faith distinct. And we see that here, right? We already said that, that it was an ancient practice that Kings built temples and they expected that the gods would give them a blessing in return. That's the principle of religion, quid pro quo, tit for tat. I do this for God, God does this for me. I scratch God's back, God scratches mine. I live the right way, pray the right way, do the right things, practice the right religion. God will bless me, God will love me, God will accept me. This is the deep religious principle that is embedded in every human heart. My friends, that's not grace. And that's not what we encounter here. Grace is not quid pro quo. Grace is the undeserved, unmerited, one-way love of God. Undeserved, unmerited, one-way love of God. Religion says, do this and God will love you. Grace says, God loves you because he loves you. <laughs> 
Because he loves you, God made you, and God loves you, and God has come for you, and God has lived for you, and God has died for you, and God has risen for you, and God is reigning for you, and God will come again for you, and God has reconciled for you, period. And what are you to do? Now live a life of joy and gratitude in response to God's great love. This is grace, is the amazing good news of what God has done and what he continues to do. And God is reminding David right here of this great truth that this whole foundation of his kingship is built on that grace because David is threatening to forget it. I love what Eugene Peterson says here. He says, David was just about to cross over the line from being full of God to being full of David. Riding the crest of great acclaim, having decisively defeated the opposition, united God's people and captured the allegiance of all Israel, David was heavy with success, and he began to think that he could do God a favor. And then Peterson says this, if any of us develops an identity in which God and God's grace is less important to who we are than our own action and performance, then our ability to represent God's kingdom is utterly ruined. You know, here's why. I think this is very, very important for us to hear, Third Church, because let's just be honest. Look around the room. You're all a very, you're all a very nice looking group of people. And you're all very successful. We're all a very successful group of people in many ways. We're successful professionally and uh, financially and socially and even religiously. You know, the church can, can even be a, a place where we begin to uh, pat ourselves on the back and feel good about all that we do for God and all that we give away and all the, all the things that we accomplish for God's kingdom. And one of the great dangers of this, the great dangers of success, is that we delude into thinking that we've done this on our own, that we're self-reliant, competent without God, that somehow we are doing God a favor. Third church, doing God a favor. But God says, remember where I found you. Remember you were in the fields. Remember you were hung out to dry. Remember you were dead in your sin. You, everything you have is because of grace. Everything you are because, is because of grace. Everything that belongs to you. The fact even that you were born in 20th century in America and not in the 13th century in Tibet. All of this, all of this is grace. And let me just say this as an aside. You know, this is why, y'all, the pimps and the prostitutes and the tax collectors loved Jesus and why the, the religious successful people of the world despised him because Jesus smelled like grace and grace stinks to people who think that they can do it on their own. This is one of the great hubs of scripture, friends, that grace is for those who are humble. Grace is for those who know they need it. Grace is for those who know they have nothing without God. This is, if you don't understand this, if you can't pass through this hub, You'll never understand Jesus. You'll never understand the gospel. The gospel is not what we do for God, but what God has done, will do for us. It is grace that led me safe thus far and grace that leads me home. So that's the second hub. We've seen the freedom of God. We've seen the grace of God. And finally, we see, friends, the promise of God. You know, David has said to God, I will build God a house. Now look what happens in verse 11. God says, Actually, I'm going to build you a house. You see that in verse 11? Isn't that funny? There's actually a play on the word house 
Um, house, the word Beth in Hebrew, can mean a structure made of bricks, but can also mean a legacy or a dynasty made of people. And so God, so David says to God, I'm going to build you a house. And God says, nope, I'm going to build you a house. And it will be a dynasty, a, 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 something, a, a legacy of your offspring that extends far beyond you. See, David's only thinking about himself and his own kingdom, but God says, I promise to make your offspring a dynasty and I will unconditionally commit myself to them and nothing, absolutely nothing, will ever be able to take my promise away. And you say, nothing? Really nothing? Yeah, nothing. Look, verse 12 and 13. Death cannot undo God's promise. He says, David, when you die, it doesn't matter. I'll still be committed. Verse 14, even sin cannot undo God's promise. He, you know, if you know the story of the kings of Israel, David's descendants, you know they're a bunch of knuckleheads. They mess things up big time. Solomon messes things. Even David does terrible things, but God says, even sin cannot break my promise of grace to you. So not death, not sin. And finally, verse 16, not even time. God says, your house and your kingdom will endure. Your throne will be established forever. Get this, y'all. God says, time is gonna end. The earth is gonna wind down. The sun is gonna get extinguished. And even then, my promise will still hold. Is God just exaggerating here? Is this a, a, a rhetorical flourish? No, this is for real. And this is why almost everything in the New Testament runs through the hub of this chapter because you can find the whole plot line of the Bible right here. Do you remember when God established a little kingdom in the garden in Genesis 1 and 2, a place called Eden, and he created the world as a paradise with himself as a king? And do you remember when we rejected God as the king and made ourselves little monarchs instead and a whole arch of, of death and destruction and war and rebellion was released on the world? And do you remember when God came to Abraham in Genesis 12 and makes a promise that out of you and your seed will come one through whom I will bless the nations and my kingdom will be reestablished on the earth? And now here in 2 Samuel 7, that promise is echoed and amplified. He specifies that this seed will be from the line of David and he will be a king who will establish that kingdom. And y'all, if you read the Old Testament, you see that this promise is like an echo that keeps moving out throughout the Old Testament. It, the Psalms sing of the promise, the day the king will come and all the mountains and trees will sing for joy. The prophets speak of the promise when the lamb will die down with the lion and the people will suffer no more. The whole storyline of scripture sings of this promise, a promise rooted in Abraham, reaffirmed in David, this promise of a king who will restore God's world and make all things right. And so can you imagine how people would have felt when in the beginning of the New Testament, in Luke chapter one, a Christmas text that we will be hearing lots of soon, the angel speaks to Mary and he says, your son will be great and will be called son of the most high. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob and his kingdom will never end. Do you see how everything runs right through here? Second Samuel 7, this eternal, unstoppable, 
unconditional, ineluctable, never breakable promise of God that God's blessing through this king will flow to the nations and all creation will be made well. I'm not sure why y'all are not more excited about this. Maybe you're just Presbyterians. Um, but let me, t- let me tell you why this means a lot to me. Let me just speak personally for a second why this means so much to me. You know, you might think, oh, you're a pastor. You have so much faith. Wrong. Um, if you know, those of you who know me well know that I have a real strong um, depressive melancholic uh, trend in my personality. I have, a, I have a, a French existentialist philosopher who lives deep down inside of me. Um, and, and, uh, and, um, and there are moments, there are moments, especially in hard and dark moments like the ones that we've lived through recently, where I really start to ask some really dark questions. Like I really start to ask, is this for real? Did, um, is Jesus really God in the flesh? Did God really visit us? Did he really rise from the dead? And you look around the world and you say, is this really gonna, is, is there really hope for this place? Is there really hope for this creation? Is there hope for this humanity? Is there hope for, hum, is, this, is there hope for me? You know, are, are we really just a, a featherless bipeds? A bundle of chemicals and neurons waiting to be eaten by worms. Is that really what we are? Is this just a crutch? Have you ever been there? But then I remember the promise. And I remember the promise that God made to Abraham. And I remember the promise that was given to David. And I remember the ancient people of God, our brothers and sisters, who waited and waited and waited. And I remember the way that promise was fulfilled to a young teenage girl. And I remember that child who was born. And I remember the way he became a king and that all scripture testifies to his life, his death, and his resurrection. And I remember the promise that is reaffirmed that in Revelation 22, Jesus says, I, the root and offspring of David, am coming again. And I remember that we continue to wait and that he continues to reign right now over heaven and earth. And that indeed a day is promised when he will come and hungry bellies will be fed and broken hearts will be mended and dead bodies will be raised and the brokenness of all creation will be healed and all things will be well. I see, I remember that promise. And that's what holds us fast, friends. Not our faith, not our ability to just do stuff for God, but God's unbreakable, faithful promise of grace to us, sealed, confirmed, made whole in the person of Jesus for us. That's what we hold on to, the promise of God. So here's one of the great hubs of the Bible. And you gotta travel through here if you're gonna get anywhere else. Because this is what we find. We find the freedom of God, which really calls us to obedience and surrender. God is not your butler, he's not your genie. Um, you cannot put God in a box and let him be domesticated by your religion. He is the eternal king. And the first step with this God is to surrender to him. We also find the grace of God, which calls us to humility. Nothing we have comes from us, everything we have comes from God. And we also find the promise of God that nothing, nothing, not death, nor life, nor the present, nor the future, nor angels, nor demons, not death, not sin, not time, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Nothing can undo the indestructible promise of God that he's given to us in the king. So we look to him 
And we keep waiting. We wait in hope. Let's pray together now. Thank you, King Jesus, that you are the one who has fulfilled the deep old promises of God and that you came once, you're coming again, that the people of Old Testament, people of God waited and we continue to wait with them now. Thank you for the ways that you reveal who you are for us in this word and give us perseverance and hope to continue to cling to the promises that you have made to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.